We're going to continue on in our sermon series of Seeing Jesus, and we're going to be reading in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So I'll give you a minute to, to find um, that scripture reference in your Bibles, or it will, be, it will be on the screen behind me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the, to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word. Well, this morning we're looking at an account of Jesus the famous account of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding at Cana. And what John tells us is that the guy who wrote the book, John, the, the disciple of Jesus, what he tells us is that this is the first sign that Jesus performs. Now, it's a miracle, right? Turning water into wine is miraculous. It's amazing. But it's not just a miracle. Like, that would be enough, right? A, a miracle is pretty amazing. But it's not just a miracle. A sign is a miracle with a purpose. A, a sign is something that points to something else, right? It, it points to something else. And the signs of Jesus that John records throughout his gospel, he records them here for a purpose. Remember this. And Duran opened our series with this in John uh, 21, 25. I believe he opened. Anyway, at some, some point we said this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. There are many other things that Jesus did, not just the things that are recorded in the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are many things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, John said, I suppose that the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. So Jesus did a lot of things, but he also told us this in John 20. But these things, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, Jesus did a lots of things, but I recorded and recounted here in this gospel certain things, and they are particularly chosen, not by John, but by the Spirit of God, so that when we hear them and see them, we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, we might have life. That's the goal of this book. 
That's the goal of this series, that we would see all the signs that John has recorded here that are pointing to Jesus. This is who Jesus is, and by seeing them, we would believe, and by believing, you would have life, real, true life, the kind of life that you're longing to have, that you would gain life. And this famous miracle that Jesus performed, this famous first sign, the, the, the word that he uses first is the word that means like first in a line or the first cause. So this is interesting. So he's saying this is purposely the first public miracle or sign that Jesus performed, and it points to something about him, and he chose it specifically to be the first. He chose this particular miracle, turning water into wine, to be the first, like a domino that sets everything else in motion. It's a tone-setting kind of sign, a a tone-setting kind of miracle. It unlocks the things that are to follow. He said, this, the first of his signs, in verse 11, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. Through this sign, Jesus showed or manifested his glory. That's his nature and his character. And because of that, his disciples believed in him. Now, that's an interesting statement because we all already agree, I think, turning water into wine is, not just water into wine, turning water into fine wine, powerful wine, heady wine, the really good stuff, the stuff that I can't afford, turning the water into that kind of wine was so incredible. It showed something about Jesus. But if we were to think about it, it's not what we would expect Jesus to start off his ministry doing. It's not the kind of sign that we would expect. If you and I were, in fact, there's this uh, old uh, uh, professor that uh, he's passed away now, but he used to be at Duke. His name is Reynolds Price, and he was a professor and an author, and he said, if you were to design, for people who say, like, this thing about Jesus isn't real, he says, if you were to design a biography about Jesus that claims that he is everything that he claimed and his disciples claimed that he was, you would no, in no way pick for this to be the first miracle or the sign that he performed. Why? Because really, did turning water into wine, as amazing as it was, did turning water into wine at this particular nondescript wedding at Cana in Galilee, did turning water into wine at this place at this time, did it really change the world all that much? I mean, really what was at danger is a party that could last anywhere from two to seven days might only last two days instead of seven. It, it, might, it might cause that the groom's family will be greatly embarrassed because they don't have enough wine. But does it really change anything in the world that he, at this nondescript wedding, turns water into wine, so much so that, that it would be his first sign, his first miracle, and that his disciples would see it, and something about it would show them his glory, so much so that they would believe that he was the Son of God. Well, it points to two things. One is it points to this must be a true account because nobody would start a biography about Jesus this way, and there's probably more going on in this story than we get at first glance. And there's going to be more that we're going to notice. 
I think what's going on here is I've studied this passage, read some commentaries. John wants us to see this account on sort of two levels. One is, he wants us to see this miracle, this sign that Jesus performs in the same way, the same, in the same manner that his disciples would have seen it at the time. How did it hit them? How did it affect them? And he also wants us to see some themes that are introduced in this story. There's things that are introduced in this sign, this miracle, that will emerge the rest of Jesus' life and ministry. And, and he, wants, he really wants us to do, some commentators say, is, is things that sort of like you watch a movie the first time through, then you watch it the second time through, and you're like, oh, I see what they were doing there, right? It brings out new layers of the movie that you didn't see before. What, he, what John wants us to do is see some things, that, some themes that he pulls out here, that then in the second or third time that you were to come around, you would see. And so things that Jesus was thinking, he was feeling, he was dealing with the disciple that hit the disciples at this moment. What we're going to see is how this sign shows us who he is, what he came to do, and what it means. Who he is, what he came to do, and what that means. So just to sum up the story, Jesus, very early, he's got his disciples that are now starting to follow him. It's the first week after John the Baptist said, this is the Christ. This is the one that I've been pointing to. And he comes to a wedding, and it's probably a wedding that he has some sort of, they're either a family friend or, more likely, probably a relative. And he shows up, and his mother is there, and his mother comes to him because she's a relative, because she's a close member of the family. They, she comes to him, and she says, they're running out of wine. And the way he responds to her is incredibly interesting. And then what he does in the middle of it is he then takes that, takes, he has them draw these six basins, six big jars of water, 20 to 30 gallons each, fills them. These would be stone, stone jars that were used to, so they could wash their hands, maybe wash their feet, but most likely wash their hands because it was very important in the Jewish culture to be clean before you would eat. And he tells them, fill those jars with water, and then all of a sudden, he tells them, draw out of those jars, and then they draw out the wine, and he takes them to the master of feast, as we read. What was the first thing? I, I think as the disciples were watching Jesus perform this miracle, what was it that stood out to them that said, wow, something's different? What was it that they saw in here that showed him his glory so much so that they believed? I think the first thing they saw is they saw the creator within his creation. Now, we all like to see a, a rich or powerful person who is just like a regular person like us. Don't you like, don't you like to say like, hey, that rich, powerful person eats terrible McDonald's and fries like I do, right? Or that rich and powerful person, he still drives the old Prius that he first began to drive before he made his, like, we love to see a rich and powerful person who kind of lives like a, a regular, normal person. And these disciples would have grown up hearing about Yahweh, the one true almighty creator God, who when his special people were trapped in Egypt, he got them out of slavery. And one of the ways that he did, one of the signs, one of the miracles that he performed was he took the water of the Nile and he turned it into blood. The creator, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, delivered them, their forefathers, from slavery in Egypt, Egypt, the mightiest of the powers on the time, but at the time by turning the waters of the Nile into blood. And now 
Jesus was before them, the one that John the Baptist pointed to said, this is the one that we've been waiting for, and now one greater than Moses is standing in their midst, and he doesn't take the water and turn it into blood. He takes the water and he turns it into wine. That's amazing. And without showmanship, he didn't gather a crowd and have lasers and lights and say magic words and do crazy things. No, in a back room at a nondescript wedding at Cana and Galilee, the creator before these disciples revealed himself in human flesh, the creator within creation. The creator had become a part of his creation. Can you imagine what had to be going through their minds when they saw that? Not only that, they saw not just the creator within his creation, but they saw the creator over his creation. What we have to really see this is we have to understand his interchange with Mary, his mother, in this. Now Mary, again, probably very close with the family of the groom, perhaps family. She learns about the lack of wine, and that would have been more than just embarrassing for the groom's family. A wedding feast, like I already mentioned, could last anywhere between usually two, usually three, up to seven days. And it was the groom's family, the groom's job to make sure that everything that was needed for this feast to happen for that long. Can you imagine how, like, like I've seen some of your weddings, how expensive that was. Can you imagine what it was like, a wedding that lasted up to seven days? And now, very early, they're running out. It was so important that this is a shame-based culture. It was so important that if you didn't perform well, if you didn't provide everything that was needed in order for this feast to go off without a hitch, then the bride's family could even sue the groom's family for the losses. So Mary sees this situation. She's bothered. and She approaches Jesus. Now, Jesus is 30 years old. Joseph, his father, Mary's husband, his Adoptive father has been dead for probably quite a while, and Jesus has now for a while been the lead supporter of his family, and Mary has learned to lean upon him. And can you imagine how resourceful the, the king of heaven in human form would be in providing for the family? Can you imagine every time that something happened, like the, the, the faucet isn't working, or the handle falls off the back door like at my house, or all these things happen? Can you imagine how re- resourceful Jesus would be in finding an answer to those problems? She had begun to learn to lean on him for a long long time to rely upon his resourcefulness. So she turns to him. We don't have any reason yet to believe that she expected there to be a miracle. Because remember, this is first sign. She comes to him and she says, here's the problem. There's not enough wine. Now his response to her had to jar her. It had to probably, in some ways, cause her to grieve or upset her because she approaches him as a mother saying, son, These good friends of ours or these family members, they're going to be shamed. They could be open for a lawsuit. They're out of wine. Please figure something out. And Jesus approaches her and he says, this is his response. He says, woman. Now, I grew up in church. I knew this account. I tried this once with my mother. I would not advise you to try it. I'm like, it's in the Bible. This word woman, it kind of conveys it. It it's, it would be like the word ma'am, but not like a southern, like you call your mom or an aunt kind of ma'am. It's like a, a ma'am that's standing off. And he says, woman or ma'am, what does this have to do with me? 
she approaches him as a mother to a son. Even though she, and she knew who he was, she had treasured up the facts of Jesus' miraculous birth in her heart, and now, all of a sudden, though, she encounters Jesus, her son, who she held close to her body, who she fed from herself. All of a sudden, she sees he is not just my son, he's the creator. He's the Lord. I can't boss him around. I can't tell him what to do. I'm his mother. Jesus honors her all the way through this gospel. But I, he will not and cannot be subordinate to her as her mother. As a son, he'll honor her. But as God, she can't order him. And this is how she responds. His mother said to his, the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now what this isn't, this isn't manipulation of a mom that's been insulted. It's the faith of a servant rather than the manipulation of a mother. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And she responds, and she says, do whatever he tells you to do, and she leaves it in his hand. The creator then exercises his power over his creation. He tells them, fill up those water jugs. He shows his glory. The creator within creation and creator over his creation, creating new creation, creating a miracle with no showmanship, no exertion, no flexing of his muscles. It took no effort of him to do the creator within his creation and over his creation. But what is Jesus thinking through this whole time? What's he thinking about? Why does he respond to his mother in this particular way? What John wants us to see Maybe you would catch it in your second or third time reading through the gospel. is a theme that unfolds throughout the rest of this book. In fact, it's a huge theme throughout all of Scripture. We see it in the next chapter. People ask John the Baptist, they say, hey, look at everybody, all your people that used to be your followers, they're now out following Jesus. What do you have to say about that? And he says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He describes us as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom. It's a long theme of Scripture. What it describes, beginning the Old Testament all the way through, it describes the type and the depth of relationship God wants to have with his people. He says this in Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom, I want you to hear this. Don't, don't listen to this with your Jesus goggles. Listen to this with like your church goggles, your church, your church earring. I want you to hear this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea 2.16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. You'll call me your husband. Hosea 2.19-20, which is, by, by the way, a story all about an unfaithful wife and a, and a prophet who's called by God to love her no matter her unfaithfulness. As Hosea 2.19-20, and I will betroth you to me. He's talking to his people. I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Jesus at a wedding in Cana. We don't know who's getting married, but here's what we know he's doing, the same thing that you and I do or did whenever we were single, or you might do when you're single now, and you even do now when you're married. You don't sit there. You, you pay some attention to the bride and groom, but at some point you get lost and you start thinking about your wedding. Either looking back and remembering your wedding or you're looking forward to your wedding. I, I can't wait till I'm in that place. Jesus is sitting at a wedding, a nondescript wedding in Canaan, and he's thinking about his wedding. You know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about his bride. As a, broom, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I rejoice over you. Do you know that's how Jesus thinks about you? Do you know that's how Jesus thinks about you? Not just us in general, but you. He's thinking about you and me, and he's longing, longing like a bride for his groom before, before the groom before his bride before the wedding. He loves you, yes, but he, not in a distant, general, safe kind of love, he loves you with a ravishing. He loves you, he rejoices over you, he sings and dances over you, and here at the wedding, when there is no wine, he's thinking about what he will have to do to provide the wine for his own wedding. My hour has not yet come. They see, the disciples see the, the creator and they see the bridegroom at this wedding. Let's look at what he came to do on both those levels. What does this sign point to about the creator coming into and living, still being over his creation? What does it tell us? It tells us that the creator came to bring a new creation. And here's what that means. It means that Jesus came back to earth to restore our lost joy. Jesus came to restore your lost joy. What does Jesus do at this wedding, at this wedding feast? He does keep the families, uh, the groom's family from public shame, but he does more than that. He performs a miracle of new creation, turning water into wine, not, not just in creating not just in creating the wine from the water, that's not just the, the miracle that it performs, but he does it in performing by creating a wine at a feast, fine, tasty, heady, powerful wine at the feast. What glory of his does this show? It shows that Jesus has come to bring and restore joy, the joy that we have lost, the joy that we sense that we're getting close to when we're at a, a great, joyous feast. You know that feeling that, that when everyone, there's dancing and singing and feasting and wine and laughter, there's not a care at a feast. There's joy, there's abundance. There's something within us that not only just enjoys that for the moment, but something within us that knows this is what we were meant for. We were meant for joy. We were meant for a feast. And that's how Isaiah prophesied about what God was going to do whenever he came to restore creation, when he came to make a new, new heaven and a new earth. This is what it looks like for God to fix creation. 
This is what the new creation of God looks like. Is it dour and sad? Is it, it's not black and white, it's full of color and joy. Isaiah 25, six through eight. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Here, this is Isaiah prophesying about what it will be like when God restores creation. I will, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces and the reproach of the people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. You know what it looks like for Christ to come? It means that he is coming. You know what it looked like for the disciples to see Jesus there turning water into wine? It meant that the creator has come back to remake and restore creation and restore the joy that has been lost. Like a feast where there's food and fine wine in abundance. That's what it's like to be a part of God's new kingdom. That's what it's like to be a part of Christ's kingdom. He came to, to show them a new creation is coming, and he came to prepare his bride. We see that in Mary's interaction with Jesus. He said, what does this have to do with me? And then he says this. My hour has not yet come. What hour hadn't cut, had yet come? Was it the hour, the time for Jesus to perform a public miracle? Well, that doesn't really make sense. Because if Mary approaches him and says, hey, they're out of wine, he says, my time has not yet come. And then, if it's talking about having a miracle or a sign, then he turns around and does, does the same thing he said is not his hour for. It doesn't really make sense. Plus, every time that word hour is used in this gospel, it points to Jesus' death. My hour has not yet come. But what does his death have to do with a wedding and a feast? And wine. I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you, but I want you to hear it this morning. This is what John, who wrote this gospel, saw when he looked to the end of the days. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Do you hear the, the marital language in that? And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 19.9, the angel said to him, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage your version might say supper, a better interpretation would be feast. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. It's going to be a marriage feast. But it's for a bride that's been prepared or adorned for her husband. See, there's in this theme of God being the the groom and us being his bride, there's a great 
kind of darker theme that runs through, I already hit on it in the Old Testament. It's a picture of us as the unfaithful bride. A bride who has dirtied herself, a a bride who has gone and run after other lovers, a bride who has given herself to anyone and anything other than her true, faithful spouse. So then, now do you see it? When Jesus said, hey, bring those jars that are for purification and fill them with water. What he's thinking about? What did that mean to Jesus? The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. The the wine, the blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. Do you hear that? Do you believe that Jesus is longing for and rejoicing over you in a powerful love, so much so that he had to adorn you and cleanse you with his blood to make you clean, and he was willing to do it. At Clownia, a theologian said, Jesus is sitting in the middle of a feast. What's he thinking about? He's sitting in the middle of a feast, sipping on, his, on death, so that we could sit in the middle of death at a feast. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he rejoices over you. I've come to bring a new creation. I've come to wipe away every tear from your eyes. I've come to abolish death and adorn you as a bride adorned for her husband. But it will come at great cost to me. My blood will become the wine that you feast and drink upon. But I will gladly do it because I rejoice over you. I long for you with a powerful love, the kind of love that would make characters in the most radical love stories blush. But you and I need to be adorned by him. We need to be beautified by him. We need to be cleansed by him to be that bride fit for the husband. And he says, I will even provide that. I love you in your unloveliness. I love you in your rebellion. I love you in your running away. I bring you in and I bring you in at the cost of myself. I bring you at the cost of my blood. And I do so still rejoicing over you and singing over you and dancing over you because I love you that much. I love you with that kind of unabashed kind of love. I will secure you for myself. I ask you this. Are you holding back yourself in shame before God? Are you trying to adorn yourself, beautify yourself, make yourself look better? Or do you come, like the song we sang, believing there's no other thing that I have to plead except the blood of Jesus Christ? I'm not going to pretend I have it better together than I am. I'm not going to pretend I'm smarter, nicer, more righteous, better than I am. I come as that bride who has been unfaithful, who has been unloving, who has tried to give herself to other lovers. And I say, if you will have me, adorn me. And I believe that you will have me because you sat at the feast sipping death so that I could sit in the middle of death sipping at the feast, the festal table of Jesus Christ.
I I know that you did that so you could spread a tail before me in the presence of my enemies. What does it mean? What does it mean that this is why he came, that he showed his glory this way? What means, first of all, that for you and I should see him in his glory, in this sign. We should see the glory of Jesus Christ, the creator, coming to make a new creation where he'll restore joy and a feast. He'll wipe away tear from every eye and he will abolish death. And we will see the bridegroom who's come to repair a bride for himself, a bride who needs adornment. Even so, he rejoices and sings and laughs and dances over us. Do you see his glory? Do you come in trying to bring yourself, fix yourself? Or do you see you are the glorious one? And because I see you and your glorious love for me, I will believe in you. Do you believe? Will you believe in his new creation power at work within you? Not just to one day make a new heaven and earth, but at work within you to make you new. To adorn you from the outside with his blood and to remake you from the inside with the power of his spirit so that you are fit to stand before him as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you believe in his bridegroom love for you? And will you taste of his feast? Will you taste of his feast that he spread before you? Paul said this, he said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, you know what Peter had to address with the people who were standing around? He says, these men are not drunk as you suppose. Now, I don't know if you've, if you've heard that before, what you picture. You picture they're acting crazy and that, like, I don't think so. You know what I think they saw when they saw them filled with the Holy Spirit? I think they saw joy and love that was unleashed within them. Because they were assured of, they didn't just know with their mind. They knew before that moment, they knew Jesus had died on the cross. They knew he had risen again. But at that moment, the Holy Spirit not just made them know with their mind, but caused them to experience in their soul the incredible, never-ending, bridegroom love of Christ to his bride. They caused them, the Holy Spirit caused them to taste a taste of the new creation that was dawning with the coming of Christ and will be fully fulfilled at his second coming. They tasted the feast of the Lord. They tasted the restored joy. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians, I pray that you would know the height and depth and length and breadth of Christ's love for you. I pray that you would know it. Are you a believer? Are you, are you content with the head knowledge that Christ loves you? Or do you long for the knowledge, the experience in your soul, released by his Holy Spirit, to taste and see that he loves you, to know the joy of the Holy Spirit within your soul, bubbling out of yourself, bubbling out of the inner beings, your inner being to experience and know what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Are you experiencing it now? 
you're not a believer in Christ, I hope today you'll hear, if nothing else, that you'll see the glory of Jesus as the new creator and the bridegroom, and you'll place your faith and trust in him alone to recreate you and to make you fit to be the bride. And if you are a believer, what I'm asking you this morning, same thing in a lot of ways I plead every Sunday, do not stop at a mental knowledge that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, that he loves you. He promises for you a taste of the joy of the new creation and an experience of his love, so much so that it can transform you the way it did these disciples and cause you to know, oh, he loves me. That's what can hold you and keep you even in the worst, hardest circumstances. And that's what can make a body of believers like this all of a sudden like a taste of heaven. Because when we gather, we gather as those who are invited to the feast and are even feasting now. And people can look in and see like they did Jesus at this feast is glory and belief. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing together. As we do, uh, Tad's going to come and, uh, uh, afterwards and uh, invite you to, actually, you're going to come forward first and then take, partake of communion on either side. If you're a believer in Christ, feel free to partake of communion. Take it back to your seat, then Tad's going to come forward and lead us as we partake of a taste this morning, physical taste of that feast that was and is and is to come that represents the feasting that's going on in the soul of the believer and our assurance that one day he will fully wipe away every tear from every eye and death will be no more. We'll have nothing but joy and love in his presence. Jesus, we thank you for your love and your grace. Father, I ask for these people in this room that you would overwhelm them with your love and your joy. Holy Spirit, cause us to taste and see that you are good, that you are real and true. Show us your glory so that we may believe. Let us feast at your table this morning, even now, I pray. In Christ's name.